This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Alice Walker, winner of both the Pulitzer Prize and the American Book Award in 1983. Alice Walker is recognized as one of the major writers of our time. Her novels include The Third Life of Grange Copeland, Meridian, The Temple of My Familiar, and Possessing the Secret of Joy. The Color Purple spent more than a year on the New York Times bestseller list and was made into a film directed by Steven Spielberg. An essayist, poet, short story writer, and children's book author, Alice Walker has taught at Wellesley, Brown, Sarah Lawrence, and Harvard, and was an associate professor of English at Yale. Which sounds true, Alice Walker is the author of the audio program, My Life as Myself, an intimate conversation that takes you into her private world and summons the powerful spirits and events that have shaped her life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Alice and I spoke about her work as a writer-activist and how it has taken her to Gaza and the Congo, and how in each situation she felt a light heart in being right where she needed to be, even in the face of atrocities. We also talked about what it means to step into the line of fire, and at times receive criticism for doing so, and how Alice has been able to remain buoyant, even in the face of such criticism. We talked about being an elder and the sacred function of elders in society. And finally, we talked about the power of praising the earth and returning to that connectedness with nature and ways to do that. Here's my conversation with Alice Walker. To begin, Alice, I just want to thank you for making this time for Sounds True. Thank you so much. I have so much admiration for Sounds True. It's a wonderful gift you've given us, Mm. and I'm so happy to be back Mm. with you again. Mm. To begin, Alice, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about spirituality and activism. And, you know, in many conversations I have with people, it's as if spirituality is on one channel and activism is this different channel. And then there are those rare beings who bring these two into some kind of integration. And what I was curious about is this idea of spirituality and activism being separate and then integrated. Is that even a paradigm that is meaningful to you or how do you see it? I think I'm led by spirit. I think I'm led by a sense of what is right and what feels good to me, what I accept, uh, what is joyful, what is positive. And I see my mission, in a way, as carrying that 
forward, uh, not so much by preaching, but by embodiment. So in that sense, it's inseparable. I mean, they're the same to me. I'm, I'm one in what I do and what I say and what I, you know, what I believe. Hmm. Now, when you mention being led by spirit and then being led even by what's joyful, one of the things that really struck me, and I've been spending some time with two collections of your writings in preparation for this conversation, one, The Cushion in the Road, Meditation and Wandering as the Whole World Awakens to Being in Harm's Way, and then a second collection of writings called We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting For, Inner Light in a Time of Darkness. And what struck me in reading so many of these essays and different talks you've given where you're talking about your experience going into really difficult and dark places, traveling to Gaza, Rwanda, different places, and yet being led by what is joyful and having, if you will, a light heart in going into such really difficult places struck by tragedy. So I'd love to understand more about that, how you can have a light, joyful heart in the midst of writing and engaging with tragedy, deep tragedy. The light heart comes from <laughs> the light heart comes from actually being there, um, because I think if I could not get myself off my cushion, off my couch, or you know, away from my whatever I'm eating, uh, or you know, drinking and partying or whatever, if I couldn't get away from that, I would have a heavy heart. But I'm there. I'm I'm where. I'm where I need to be, so my heart is light. And whatever happens, uh, I know, I mean, I feel, you know, this. I feel that this is absolutely where I should be. And I've lived up to my own expectations. Mm. And honestly, that is the most important thing to me. Can I continue to live up to my own expectations uh, of myself? Mm. You know, and not fall back and slacken and my my big complaint with myself is that I get tired but I I forgive myself because it's human to get tired but I didn't always feel like I could forgive myself there was a certain drivenness I think but but now I feel like okay you can be tired and people should let you be tired and you should go and take a nap and you should you know you know sleep and um and that's about it but otherwise I feel like to be where you need to be, where you know you need to be, is such a high. It is such a, I mean, what could be better? But what about the actual act of seeing firsthand, witnessing such pain and tragedy as in these different places in the world that you've traveled to and sort of being overwhelmed by that and then writing about it. I mean, and still being able to do that with this joyful heart. I think that's what really impressed me. So I want to know more about how you do that. I just really love people a lot. I really love them. And I, you know, I was, <laughs> I was saying to someone recently, trying to explain how I loved my grandparents when I was a, a child. And honestly, I love them so much that I, I often thought I would just burst. I thought I couldn't contain it. You know, I just love them. And 
Oh, and so someone that has really just stayed with me, although I'm really very sedate, you know, I'm really very, I think, you know, kind of mellow and not actively, um, you know, I rarely jump up and down. Uh, but in my heart, I'm jumping up and down, and I'm feeling such an amazing love uh, that that is what does it. You know, um, the the hardest part is when you're in danger yourself, and you have to face um, what could happen and might even be likely to happen to you. I mean, it's not just that you're there standing next to somebody that something bad is likely to happen to. And that is a true moment of reckoning uh, with with who you really are, you know. And, and you know, are you really going to be standing there? Um, and and I think that that moment of commitment uh, is both very light and very heavy. You know, you can actually feel uh, how bad it could be, but at the same time, you know, you're there. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the lightheartedness. It's because you got off your couch, you got off your, you know, wherever you're, you were comfortable, uh, and you made the journey, and you're there where you really know you need to be. Can you give me an example of that, Alice, when you felt your life was endangered? Uh, well, on the boat to Gaza, we're trying to get to Gaza, and um, the Israeli government was giving us a very hard time. They had started to sabotage the the boats. You know, they had tampered with um, the, the underpinnings of the boats. I forget what you call it. But uh, and then and then we were met with these by these uh, uh, people with with their guns uh, to keep us from leaving uh, the the Athens. And we we left, but we had to turn back. Or in the Congo. I remember very much um, riding. To, it, it, I don't know if you know this, but the Congo is really beautiful. Hmm. You know, I mean, they keep people correct me and say, "Oh, you mean the Democratic Republic of the Congo?" Well, fine, but the land there, the landscape is extraordinary. I mean, it is just big lakes and beautiful hills and trees. But anyway, as you know, it's being completely destroyed. And so when when we were there. I was with a photographer who actually uh, started trying to take photographs of these very mean, hungry-looking young soldiers lining the, you know, the road, uh, which put us in would have put us in a, quite a lot of danger if we hadn't been able to kind of sit on her. You know, real fear, um, and which brings me to this idea of fearlessness. You know, people will say to you, oh, you're fearless. That is so not true, and we should stop saying that about people. Yeah. It's a slander, really. And, it, and it, um, I think what it does is it, it, it dehumanizes people, and it makes them seem like they're so different from you. People feel fear. I mean, it's totally, you know, so, so we were afraid. I was afraid in the Congo, as, as on the boat to Gaza, but it's what do you do then? What do you do when you're afraid? And you know you're afraid, you know, and you can have no way of knowing how this will even impact your health later. I mean, this is another part that's often not talked about, how you can, months later, you're still, I mean, I, I understand, um, what is it, post... Um, Post-traumatic stress, stress, yeah. Stress.
syndrome, I, I understand it completely because, you know, you, you, you're there, you're standing somewhere where, you know, many people have just been chopped to bits, like in Rwanda, for instance, in, in this part of Congo is right, is, is where a lot of the people from Rwanda fled, you know, fled across that part. You know, you, you're, you're trying to, you know, be there, be supportive, uh, be present, you know, all of it to show people that they're not alone, they're not forgotten, that somebody cares, somebody loves them, somebody sees that they are beautiful and they're great. And it's not their fault, whatever rotten thing is being done to them. But, you know, months later, you can still be having, uh, you know, physical uh, repercussions that you didn't expect. You can have mental uh, things happening that you didn't expect because you have, you know, placed yourself where you had to, quote, had to be. But uh, it's almost like nobody told your body <laughs> Nobody told your body that. Mm-hmm. And body is freaking out. I remember coming back from the boat, you know, the, I can't say it's a failed attempt. We didn't get to Gaza, but we left the shore. And my, my feeling is that, you know, leave the shore. You may not get anywhere, but leave the uh, expletive shore. <laughs> uh, so I got home and... You know, not thinking that anything had really changed, and I got into this little farm truck that I have to, you know, haul, I don't know, whatever, manure and, um, you know, firewood and whatever is heavy. And, you know, I'm used to driving this little thing. It's not a, it's not that big, but I right away ran into a tree. You know, I just ran into a hmm. tree. I, I was not there. I was not connected still to my body. Uh, I couldn't, I mean, you know, so so, so their, their thing, that was like a, a, the biggest thing. No, the other thing was then a dog that we have that I've been around, you know, for years. I just tripped over it and just fell, you know, just hard, damagingly hard. Because, again, the places that we can be taken to are so far from where we live day to day that, you know, the psyche or whatever has a hard time getting back. And so it can take, you know, it depends on who you are, but in my case, six months uh, or, or a year to uh, re, you know, reclaim myself, reintegrate myself, and, and really feel whole. So I, I have to factor that in as a cost. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to say, well, then is it worth it? Well, yeah, it is worth it. You know, because... Unfortunately, you can always see that life is so much more challenging for the people you're there to witness, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the lightheartedness, uh, you know, who knows what, what you know, goddesses send this beam of, of lightheartedness, but thank goodness, because otherwise it would be too depressing. Yeah. Because you know, I mean, you know, that anything that forces you to act uh, at the possible, you know, harm of your own existence, you know is going to exact a cost. And you have to then think about, can I pay this? Uh, what will this mean, you know, to me, to my relationships, you know, to my family, to, to everybody? I mean, what is this going to take? How much of me is this going to take? 
And I think this is the place that people fear, you know, and rightly so. It's not small. But the the, the consequence of not doing that uh, could, could be, you know, worse, I think. I mean, I was reading somewhere where in this country... A third of the people, I, this may be an exaggeration, but a large number, but I think it was a third of the people who can you know, afford the stuff, they are on tranquilizers of hmm. one sort or another. And uh, I would say just throw the tranquilizers away and go and do something that you think you can't do. And then see, you know, suffer whatever that is for however long it takes and then see who you are. And I think that your health and everything else will be improved. Now, some people don't have a clear calling to go to some part of the world and make a contribution anywhere near the way that you have. I mean, they're not writers. They just, I don't really know. That doesn't feel right to me. I'm not called for that. And I realize you're not advocating in any way that people do a specific event, just that they become empowered in some way. But I still want to address that person who feels this overwhelming sense of despair and has no clarity about how to respond. They feel helpless. Well, you know, where I live in Mexico, I live on a, in a tiny village called La Manzanilla, and there was, it was hit by the worst hurricane ever to hit the world that we know of, uh, Patricia. And, you know, people lost pretty much everything, all, all up and down between Puerto Vallarta and um, Manzanillo. They, they were hit just, you know, terrifically hard. Don't have roofs, don't have sometimes no walls either, but just, you know, devastation. Uh, and what I've seen from, you know, keeping in touch as well as I can is that what I find so typical in Mexican culture is the helpfulness of the people to each other. And I think at this point, that is the highest good and the highest we can hope for, which is to be of help and use to each other wherever we are. We are in for, a, uh, you know, disasters without end. Uh, and, and, and so I think the, the light, you know, of, um, you know, of, of our presence, Basically, and of our willingness, you know, to, to take up the, the broom and the and the uh, dustpan and the you know the you know try to drag the lambs out of the street and, and and try to raise money to put on a roof and try to make sure people have water right where you are. I think that that is what is probably the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I want to talk a little bit more about each one of us coming into our voice in some way. And if you think that even is a calling for people, and this is, I'm going to read something to you that is from one of your essays. And here's what you write. I have spent a lifetime finding and using my voice so easily silenced as a young person by the overwhelm of grief. Looking back, I see that claiming my voice, asserting it in writing, became a practice that in many ways saved me, saved me from despair, hopelessness, from total and complete withdrawal emotionally from other human beings. And I wanted to talk about that because I can imagine a lot of people in the light of current events are touching into the fact that they don't feel 
free in their own voice. Their own voice feels somehow reserved or trembling. And what you might say to people who are experiencing that? Uh, well, you know, I love meditation. And I love it because that's where you find what your voice is. You cannot really find it easily in this culture. This culture is the noisiest culture ever, ever. Uh, and I think the damage that it has done to people uh, is, is in that realm of silencing them. They, they're uh, overwhelmed by gadgets. They, they don't know what to think because they're so heavily programmed about what, is, you know, what it is that they should want and what they should think. So in a sense, you have to steal back yourself. You have to steal back your own mind. And meditation helps in that area. You know, meditation is, is, is like the, the cloak of the good thief. Uh, you find a corner or somewhere where you can actually entertain your own self and your own soul and understand what is your work here. You, you're not here just to, you know, be a, a clone. You're not here to be a, 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 you know, a copy. We have enough of those. I mean, we, you know, you don't have to apply. You don't have to even go there. Uh, to be absolutely yourself, real, here, now, on this planet, it's just, you know, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's, it's just, it's like, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you can only stand so much ecstasy. I can never get over the mystery of this wonder that we, we bumbled into. I mean, I can't think anybody was, you know, planning it exactly. Uh, but who knows? You know, I don't know. I just know that somehow we got here. Uh, and so that there is reason for for an ecstatic uh, existence, and 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 also that ecstasy is not sustainable over you know forever. I mean, on some level, maybe it is, but I'm just saying that uh, if you can connect with that, even if it's just a moment of of ecstatic wonder that you exist at all in this huge magnificent, sprawling uh, wonder, you know, you're fortified. It's like, um, oh, I don't know, minerals for the spirit, uh, where you you get fortified and then you go out and you want to, you know, protect, save, keep, honor, uh, join, uh, whatever makes, makes, more of this or makes more health for this. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's really mind-blowing. Um, and so if you can, you know, get over being in despair and, and stop thinking about the soldiers who are shooting out the eyes of children deliberately and setting people to fire in their beds and bombing hospitals and chopping people's limbs off and, you know, chasing people out of their homes and, you know, not wanting to shelter refugees, you know, all the things. If you can just for a moment step back from that and say, okay, I am here, so I must have, you know, done something right to get here. I'm here. I'm really loving this. I thank you so much. Whoever, however this happened, you know, I just adore you and thank you. And out of that feeling, then, you turn 
uh, to whatever he's doing. And it could be, you know, next door. It could be in your house. Uh, I don't require myself of anyone to, to go beyond what they feel they can do. You know, I, I just do suggest for their own eventual happiness that they go as far as they can. You know, and, and they can usually go much further than they think. And then you come up against, you know, it seems to me, um, you know, one's fear of dying. Uh, and that is very real. So you, you have to constantly, you know, and on your little mental wheel back there somewhere, think about uh, this could cost me my life. And what does that mean? And you eventually get to this place where you realize that you're dying anyway. I mean, that it's you're you're, you're constantly on your way somewhere else anyway. And that dying to this reality, obviously, obviously, like everything else here, releases you into a whole other cycle of being something else. And I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, and and to not fear it uh, is a is a good thing, you know. I mean, you might fear how it happens, but as far as we know, everybody dies. And sometimes I think uh, people like you know Martin and Malcolm and you know people who are assassinated, Kennedy, uh, the Kennedys. You know, some, there's a there's a way of looking at it, and I'm sure most people have have looked at it this way that. You know, if you visit someone who's dying painfully of cancer, which we are doing right now with a friend, mm-hmm. he wants to die so badly. You know, he's in hospice. Every day he, he pleads he wants to die. The pain is so horrible, and the medicine doesn't always take care of it. And I think, well, you know, uh, the ones who left in a blaze of whatever... <laughs> you know, probably save themselves from this kind of end here where you're dying of some disease that's making you wish you were dead. So it, it's, it takes, you know, time to, to sort out these, these issues with yourself and, and, to, and to live in a certain state of readiness. You know, you, you just learn to live there. And people, whether they know it or not, you know, they're in the state, but they're often not aware that they need to be in the state and be ready to be there. You know, it's like, uh, you know, years ago when they had the, the threat of nuclear um, war, and we have it today. I mean, it hasn't, you know, it's, we still have the threat. Uh, and people were taught to duck under their you know, little desks. And it's absurd. You can't really save yourself by Mm-hmm. a wooden desk. And the same is true now. You cannot really expect to save yourself. And, and anyway, what would it mean to save yourself and not everybody, you know? Uh, so it's just, you know, living with that reality that, that we don't decide the time. We don't have the control. Someone has the control, but we don't. I mean, generally speaking, the humans, you know, the the whatever billions we are, we, we don't have the control. We, we are considered expendable, basically. So you live in a, in, a, in a state of, if not preparedness, you know, just readiness. 
You know, it may happen this way, it may happen that way. But this is where I want to be. This is where I want to be. I want to be with these people. I know who they are. I see them. They're wonderful. You know, they it makes them happy that I'm here. It, it eases the burden a little bit that I'm here. Um, and if I have to go down somewhere, I just soon go down with these people, you know. And I think really that's what love is. I really, I really think that that has to be what love is. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So, Alice, you talked about facing one's own fear of death, and earlier you talked about sometimes getting more tired than you used to get. And I I know that as we're having this conversation, you've passed the mark into your eighth decade of life. You've lived more than 70 years. And I'm curious to know how the aging process is going for you and what kinds of insights you're having as you age about the aging process. I feel very young. Uh Uh-huh. You sound young. I feel young because I'm sure we talked about this years ago, but I have this ancestor called my four greats grandmother, and she lived to be 125. Hmm. So I'm I'm about halfway. (laughs) You know, um, or maybe two thirds of the way. But I I feel um, I feel very thankful really, uh, to have gotten this old, and I'm, I'll be 72 in uh, February, and I, I seem to myself to have lived every moment uh, that I wasn't too tired <laughs> to live, and uh, with all of its you know, ups and downs, and there have been some terrific downs, I still am just as astonished as I was, I think, as a child. I I was, when I was a child, I spent a lot of time alone because my mother had to work, you know, the whole story. But anyway, I would be left alone, and I would be walking around with this stick in my hand, which, you know, I still kind of walk around with a stick in my hand, but I would drag it along the the fence, you know, where we, we had cows and pigs and everything, and I would kind of, you know, making a kind of strange music with a stick. And I just felt so at peace with being, so, um, you know, the, the rightness of, of my life, even though we were so poor in, you know, the terminology of the world, but we didn't listen to them. We, we never thought of ourselves as poor. Uh, and, and it was hard to think of yourself as poor if you notice sunsets, for instance. I mean, <clears throat> or if you 
you know, watch the storm coming. I mean, sometimes the clouds would look exactly like waves, and and that was just so extraordinary. And then you'd have this huge thunderstorm, and if you could stay outside, if they didn't, you know, grab you and try to make you stay dry, I mean, you could just be really completely wet from the, from the rain. And things like that, I think, I mean, not to mention lightning, which is dangerous, but my God, is it beautiful. And and what is happening? We used to think, my parents told us that the, the rumble of the thunder was the, the gods, of, well, the one god they had, but I kind of, you know, multiplied that. Then <laughs> those gods were dragging the furniture across the sky. And I like to think of them doing that, you know, just rearranging the furniture Um, maybe because that's something I like to do. I like to rearrange furniture. So you feel young, and yet I would say in our culture that you now are in the chair of an elder. You're an elder for people. People look up to you in that way. And I wonder if you have a sense of what the sacred function of an elder might be. I am an elder, and I'm delighted to be an elder, uh, and I would like to um, uh, exhibit, explore it, you know, more what an elder could mean in this time, but I'd like to show that elders are good for us, that they can be good for us. Now, we have elders who, you know, misguided and falling around, you know, in troughs of money and <laughs> with the wrong sort. <laughs> You know, they're, they're not really good elders for the youth to, to emulate, and, and the youth rightly don't like them. Um, but in all ancient traditions, and I'm thinking now of African traditions and Native American traditions and European indigenous traditions, all of the old ancient trad- goddess traditions, the people in Lithuania probably still do some of this, but there there is that sense uh, that... When people become elders, when they're, you know, older, I mean, they could be old without being an elder, really, I think. They just be old and kind of, you know, not very useful. Uh, But the duty is to exhibit um, some commitment to the youth, you know, some um, commitment to their their, uh, growth, you know, their understanding of reality, uh, their ability to choose a life that is not just making a living. Um, so so I, I always have felt that elders were really important, and I, I think it's because in my little southern black culture, elders really were respected, and, and you everybody listened to them. They may not have agreed. That's a whole different story. But they would totally listen and consider what the elder had to say. And then, you know, uh, that's, that's what elders could do. They could just be that, that person who, who let people do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in your work being led by spirit, somehow spirit has led you to put yourself out there in the world in really strong ways through your writing. I mean, I think about it as you putting yourself in the line of fire again and again and again. And you've also received a lot of criticism 
in your life. And one of the things I'm curious is how you've been able to not be dragged down by that criticism. Still, Alice, what has impressed me so much digging into your writings was this overall sense of buoyancy that I felt. And I was like, wow, here she's received so much criticism for this, that, and the other thing, and she's buoyant. How are you doing it? Well, where can I go? I mean, so, so, so I'm taken out. You know, some, there was some journalist who was, I think, threatening to murder me, and somebody else said that my books would now become landfill, and, you know, they would do this and they would do that. Well, okay, so maybe they will do all those things, but where can I go except to my ancestors? There's nowhere else to go. And I like them. So that is a fear that doesn't exist in me. You can't send me anywhere that I wouldn't be happy to go. And you'd be surprised at how that lightens the heart. Okay, tell me what you mean more that you could go to your ancestors. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, if I'm killed, uh-huh. you know, if, 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 if I'm you know, removed, um, there, there is nowhere else for me to go but to my ancestors. The, the ancestors, you know, there's a, let me see, which I think it's the Crow people uh, who, who, who wrote or said, and it was written down, to the, um, you know, the, the invaders, the, the uh, settlers in this country. They said that to a certain depth, if you dig in the ground here, meaning America, to a certain depth, uh, that is all our people. They, they've been buried here for so long. That, that is all, all the dirt, everything you would get for, you know, several, I don't know, yards down, that would be crow people. After that, you would come to what you would consider dirt. Um, so I feel that, not just physically, I feel that that's true physically, that, you know, my ancestors make up the skin of the world. That's who that is. That's what that is. That's us. But also spiritually, um, I feel that, that the ancestors are that covering that will cover me. You know, I feel like I can only be re- enveloped more deeply in them spiritually and physically. So whatever transition I make, and at whatever time I make it, I'm going home. You know, that expression, you know, you're going home or you're crossing over, I understand it completely. You know, you, you just, you're just going back to, you know, well, I don't know what it's back to, but you're going there. And wherever that is uh, has a future. I mean, which is an extraordinary thought that you, you die. And, and this is why, you know, man-made religions don't work for so many of us. You know, the, the, the notion that, you know, you're dead and that's it and, they even try to contain you in coffins, and they make them out of steel and stuff. Um, but really, your journey, for all you know, is just beginning. I mean, for all I know, I, you know, what you see now is just a tiny little seed. <laughs> so, I, I, I may blossom into an entire, uh, I don't know, something, you know, in the sky. I mean, you, you just, who knows? where we're going so that actually helps I mean it helps to have this kind of connection to the natural world which is endless it's, it's you know uh, 
far as we know, you can just keep going and going and you never get to the end of it because there is no end. The ending is a beginning. And if you feel like that, then you accept that wherever you have to stop on this this journey, uh, you, you continue some in some other form, you know, somewhere else. Now, Alice, that that makes sense in terms of the fear of being killed, but when it comes to you know like public criticism and dialogue about somebody's work. Often it doesn't result in their death. It just results in people saying a bunch of mean things on the internet. And so part of my question is how you've dealt with that and how you stay buoyant in the face of that kind of, you know, public criticism. You know what hurts the most? Mm -hmm. What hurts the most is being misunderstood. And they tell me that's an Aquarian trait, that that's the thing we don't like. And I think that's true. I feel like um, people who have been so hostile to me and so mean, maybe they deliberately misunderstand what I'm offering. And I see it all as an offering. I'm offering it. You don't have to take it. I'm not trying to sell it to you. In fact, my bl- I now write directly on my blog because you don't have to buy it. You just log in. Um but criticism is painful. You know, I've been under the bed. I mean, I've been just as low as, you know, you you know how Virginia Woolf used to go crazy every time she published a book with it because of the critics. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some of that, you know, in me and in, in I think most people, I mean, not to, you know, her extent, but you, you realize that hardly anyone is going to understand it. Um, and, you know, those that do will probably understand it incorrectly, really. I mean, you know, compared to what you're trying to do. Uh, but you, I, what can I say? It's just the recoverability of, of of life in the face of the magnificence of where you are. I mean, next to, uh, you know, this olive tree in my yard, my worst critic is just, you know, hapless. Hmm. I mean, you know, Critics just don't, I mean, they count because they can really affect your livelihood, and that has happened, but they don't really affect the fact that we live in this paradise and what is the meaning of that and what luck to have this, and are we really going to let it just die out from under us? I mean, it's just, it's almost unbelievable where we are as a planet because people have been so afraid of, you know, rocking the boat, of putting forward what they really believe, and of standing with people who need to be stood with. What are the biggest ways you feel you've been misunderstood? Which ways really affected you? Well, um, I honestly think that well, let me put it this way. It was, a, it was a, a shock to realize that people would actually have a problem with my trying to bring some light to the practice of female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a place that you would think is so obvious. I mean, would you yourself hold down a little baby girl and proceed to cut away all of her genitals? I mean, 
it should be a it should be a no brainer, you know, just a, an anathema, you know. It should be. I mean, people would just look at you as some of them did and say, well, you know, that just it's not possible. Well, it is possible. It's happening right this minute. Uh, and there is a certain weariness, you know. I mean, you, that's why you get tired. You know, I, you know, wrote this novel, Possessing the Secret of Joy, made a film about the practice, you know, first went all over, you know, places where where FGM is practiced, made a film, lugged the film around Africa, wherever we, could, wherever we could find a projector, and London, New York, San Francisco, everywhere we could go, we went, Pratiba Palma, the filmmaker, and I. Uh, and still, you know, after 10 years, to to have people say things like, oh, you know, this is the colonial gaze, she's just trying to, you know, get back in the limelight. <laughs> um, really, I, as you can tell, I'm still on some level speechless mm-hmm. before this kind of, uh, attitude. I, I, some part of me will never understand it. I, I just don't, because what is, you know, suppose I'm all these awful things, every awful thing you can think of, um, and I'm doing this for, you know, I don't know, whatever. But what is that against the actual practice of this atrocity on millions of children and women to this moment? I mean, what am I to that? Nothing. You know, I mean, really, because the the idea of, of writing about it and of making a film about it and of talking about it uh, is to bring the awareness to the people, all of them on the planet, not just Africa, not just, you know, Asia, wherever, you know, London, wherever these things happen. Ah. <sighs> um, it's to help us to stop this because it's harming us as a planet. And that's why the book, that book is written the way it is written so that you can see that these atrocities that people do to each other don't stay in the tribe that they are practiced in, whatever the tribe is, you know, whether it's a gay tribe or, you know, whatever. Uh, Things don't stay put. They travel, and that is that is you know that is why people have to pay attention to what is done to harm other people, because if you are a person, eventually it's going to fly right back in some form at you. And that's why the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is just absolutely right on. What I notice in this conversation, Alice, is this thread of praise of our life, praise of the earth, praise of being here, that there's some love that you're able to communicate that feels like a touchstone that in one way or another has been running through our whole conversation. And what I'm wondering is when you don't feel that, how do you return to it, or how oh, does God. it return? Good question. When I don't feel that, I feel bereft. I feel like a child who's lost his mother. I feel like a calf whose mother has been gone off to slaughter. It's very hard, and I pray 
I pray for a return of, you know, connectedness. And and uh, because it's such a blessed state, and I'm really aware of that. You know, I'm aware that it's rare, uh, and I'm aware that it matters to me that I feel loved by the universe, and I do. But sometimes I, you know, lose it, and I feel like, you know, where is Mama Universe? You know, where where is the light? And and I, I, throw myself into you know, cleaning out closets and gardening and, you know, trying to do trivial, mundane things and, you know, sometimes not so mundane or trivial. I visit people and I, you know, I do things that I can do without the light. You know, I I can bring my body there and I'm, you know, I can scrub your floor or massage your feet or whatever. But I am aware that I'm just like a half I'm just a half, you know. And so what helps is, is, again, meditation is very helpful. Stretching, yoga is very helpful. All these things, they really do help. Good food and a lot of sleep. And so I, you know, and reading, you know, reading good good books and uh, sometimes movies, although a lot of the movies are, are difficult. But, yeah. Uh, that's that's what I do. I recognize it. You know, it's like, oh, I've lost the light, and um, I can't make it come back. You know, I've used it up. Usually, that's what's happened. You use up your light, and you know, you just have to, you know, hope that it will come back. And 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 I think what brings it back is the steadiness of your own love. You know, you you continue to be loving. You continue to, to, to look at everything and admire it. I really think admiration for nature uh, can save us. I mean, true admiration to the point of, of um, not letting it be harmed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In reading many of your essays, one of the things I found that thrilled me to no end was that you mentioned several Sounds True audio programs uh-huh. in different essays, different programs, whether it was Pema Chodron or Jack Cornfield or even a, a program called Shamanic Navigation by John <laughs> Perkins that oh, yeah. Sounds True has published. And it was obvious to me that audio, not just Sounds True programs, but audio books and audio listening is something that is of value to you. And I was curious to hear more about that. Well, you know, I um, I have vision problems, and uh, I, so I can't really read as much as I used to. And so on that level, uh, audio is perfect for me. Plus, I love hearing, uh, you know, a good tale or whatever. Uh, and I so value Sounds True because I feel like the pre-selection is excellent. You know, like you don't have to wade through a whole lot of, junk, you know, to find the jewel, but there are a lot of jewels, and they're, they're often quite different. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's how that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the other thing is you can do what you're doing while you're listening to something. That's how I also study my Spanish. Uh, I, you know, I've lived now part-time in Mexico for over 20 years. My Spanish is still pretty bad. 
uh, and I, you know, I have I've gone to school, I've taken lessons, I have teachers, da da da. But actually, having uh, the audio in my pocket while I'm doing something else and just kind of listening as I'm working uh, is, is probably the best way for me to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Alice, I'm wondering if to finish our conversation if you would be willing to either read or recite for us a poem that something in our conversation might have sparked for you. All right. Well, I opened this book, uh, Horses Make a Landscape Look More Beautiful, uh, to We Alone. And I think this speaks to the question of what people can do if they don't want to be, you know, out there uh, in the rough and tumble. Because as I see it, our problem mostly and our abuse of each other and of the planet is, is greed, you know, just the rampant, incredible greed that people have, partly because they, you know, they, they're empty and they can't, they can't get enough because they're, you know, it's just that Buddhist thing about, you know, the hungry ghost with the little mouth and the big belly. This is called We Alone. We Alone can devalue gold by not caring if it falls or rises in the marketplace. Wherever there is gold, there is a chain, you know. And if your chain is gold, so much the worse for you. Feathers, shells, and C-shaped stones are all as rare. This could be our revolution to love what is plentiful as much as what is scarce. Hmm. Alice, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to be oh, a guest. Oh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for calling. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Alice Walker. She's the author of more than 30 books, and With Sounds True has created the classic audio program my life as myself. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>